0: (laughs) when we say Jesus is Lord we're saying Jesus is God he's equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit within the Trinity it also means that he is king we belong to him and we are under his kingly reign and authority that is the good confession we make when we're baptized. It's not confessing our sins. You can if you want to, but let's, not be, let's be careful about what we go into in public spaces and with, also, with a mixed company of people. We are confessing primarily, most importantly, Jesus is Lord. He's become my Lord, my King. When Christians in the first century went about describing Jesus as their Lord, it got them into a whole heap of trouble. It was the time of the Roman Empire, the Roman emperors, some of whom claimed to be gods. They claimed divinity. They even called themselves saviour. So you can find to this day inscriptions on the statues of those emperors. They put them up in every major town in the empire so people knew who was their king. And on some of them it says, this is Caesar, God and saviour. King, God and saviour. Christians were saying, in those times, in that climate, Jesus is our King and God and Savior. It's a brave statement of faith in those times. Jesus is our King. And so i showed the video. He's, let me just do my own little riff. Not, I'm not Lockridge, I wish I was, but anyway, in a way. He is the King of heaven, the King of angels, the King of the cosmos, the King of this world, the King of the nations. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. That means every other ruler or authority is under him and accountable to him, including presidents, prime ministers, dictators. He's the king over his church and over every Christian. So why is it difficult for some of us to say, Jesus is my king? We kind of, will do Lord, but king... Maybe because it begins to teach us something about how we relate to him. So let's explore this this morning. Since Jesus is Lord, King, and God, what does that make us? How do we relate to him in that way? Firstly, we are his subjects. They begin with S, by the way. What do you expect from me? We are his subjects or citizens, and that's two ways of saying it. We've been brought from being under Satan's rule to being under the rule of King Jesus. God, Colossians 1, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In another place, Paul actually uses the expression from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of Jesus. People like to think of themselves as being free. I'm a free person. I do what I please. No one is free. We're either citizens and subjects of a kingdom of darkness, or a kingdom of light. We're either subjects of Satan or of Jesus Christ. We don't have any freedom. You think you're free to make decisions? You are influenced by your upbringing, by, by, by your fallen nature, by your fallen society. We'll get to that a bit later on, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These things are shaping you and forming you and twisting your mind. You are not free. But we as Christians pursue freedom by pursuing Jesus and the truth. We find our freedom in Him. Belonging to Him and even obeying Him is our freedom. Let me say again, one kingdom or the other one. There is no fence to sit on. There's no in-between. It's one or the other. We are already, if you're a Christian, you're already a citizen of heaven, which is pictured as the, the new Jerusalem, like a beautiful city. We are citizens of the world to come. It belongs to us already. We are inheriting it when we enter into it. But it's already ours in Jesus. If we are his, Jesus reigns over us. Let me put this to you this way. He is responsible for us, and we are responsible to him. He takes care of us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, the things you worry about, food, clothing, gas bills, all of these things, will be added to you. He will take care of us. We need to be responsible to Him. He's responsible for our provision, our protection, our preservation. All of those things come, by the way, in that pattern prayer, the Lord's Prayer that I often refer to. We don't claim them. i are going to have this now, Lord. We ask and receive them from Him. Ask and you'll receive. Ask. Jesus teaches us to ask. We are citizens with privileges but also subjects with responsibilities. We can explore those by using the next two terms to describe us. We are his servants. We're responsible to him, and he's responsible for us. We are responsible to be his servants, to keep his commandments and follow his instructions. See, the king is an absolute king. He's not a dictator, but he has absolute authority. His word is law. When we talk about his word, we mean the scriptures, the word of God. Not prophetic words from people. I believe in prophecy, but words of prophecy do not have the authority of scripture and must be tested by scripture. The general boundaries for prophesying are set out by Paul in 1 Corinthians 14. Building up encouragement and strengthening, comfort. When prophesying goes beyond those boundaries, it's going into a risky area. And when it's proved to be unreliable, that what was prophesied didn't happen, then all prophesying begins to lose its value. And I don't, want it, I don't want it to do that, because I believe we need to be built up and encouraged and stirred and, and strengthened through those momentary words of the Lord that come to us. But they're not, they're not the same as Scripture, they don't have the authority of the Scripture. Now, New Testament writers gladly confess themselves to be servants, even slaves of the Lord Jesus. I, Paul, the servant of the Lord. The word there is the same as slave. They're not claiming some superior role compared to other Christians. I know people have sometimes talked to me and to other parts that he's the servant of the Lord, he's the servant of the Lord. We are not superior. We are all servants of Christ. That's what Scripture teaches. We are all his servants. Whether we're good ones or not so good ones, we are his servants. There's no opt-out on it. The book of Romans has the same phrase at the start and end of the letter. Romans 1 and Romans 5. The obedience of faith, or the version I'm using nowadays, the Berean Study Bible, the obedience that comes from faith. All nations, all peoples, are to be led by the gospel to the obedience of faith to Jesus, to obey Him. Faith in the Lord obeys the Lord. To talk about, if I if was to speak about disobedient faith, that would be a nonsense. There's a, a posh word for that, bro. never mind. Servants of the Lord have one simple directive to do all that the king tells them to do and not to do what the king tells them not to do. To keep his commandments, positively and negatively. To do what he tells us to do and don't do what he tells us not to do. Where do we find his instructions? We find them in God's Word in the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. Jesus talked about the Law and the Prophets. We find them in New Testament Scripture, the teaching of Jesus himself, and then the application of Jesus' teaching by the apostolic writers in the the epistles and so on. Then there's also conscience and the guidance, the voice of the Holy Spirit, who affirms us what's good and pleasing to God and warns us. Have you ever had that kind of ringing bell feeling? Ding, 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 ding. No, 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 no. That's your conscience stimulated by the Holy Spirit saying, whoop, 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 stop here, whoop. And other times there's a sense of, oh, I need to do this. And it's comfortable to do it. You feel happy, blessed to do it. It's the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now the guidance of the Holy Spirit and even conscience can never be contrary to Scripture. It feels all right to me, even the Bible says so. No, it's wrong, because the Bible says so. All right? His word is law. We keep His commandments. In 1 John and 2 John, the Apostle John repeats four times over that those who belong to Jesus keep His commandments. And it's how we show, we evidence that we love God. We keep and obey His word. So any form of Christianity that says it doesn't matter that the Bible says this or the Jesus says that or the law says this, now, we're not under the sacrificial law, the ritual law, the, 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 the observances of Israel. The law, we're not under that law of Israel. But the moral law of God, chiefly the Ten Commandments, is still an abiding principle of what is right and wrong. Revelation, there's a little phrase. There. Here is a call for the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And i tell you something, if you're going to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, you're going to have to be persevering in that. You'll be challenged. You'll be conflicted. There'll be people trying to make you compromise again and again and again. It calls for perseverance, for endurance. The words of Mary, the mother of Jesus, to those servants at the Cana wedding, remember? They ran out of wine, and he said, she says to him, do something. He says, what What are you telling me to do something? You know, And... Uh, but she turns to the servants and she says, whatever he says to you, do it. That was, that was pretty cheeky, wasn't it? Whatever he says to you, do it. But that was a good principle for us, folks. Whatever he says to us, do it. Further than servants, I want to talk about we are his stewards The Lord Jesus teaches us in his parables, and I could have gone on a long time with the parables of Jesus, servants and stewards and so on. Not time to do that. There's a difference between a servant and a steward, which is this. A servant is given instructions and must simply do them. He's got to keep coming back for instructions because that's all he does. But a steward is given responsibility, charge over some things. They must take initiative and act wisely and honorably to serve their king or master. Take, for instance, the parable of the talents. He gave to to one person one, to one person five, to one person ten, and he went away. In fact, in a number of parables, Jesus talks about the king or the master going away. They're left to get on with it. Then he comes back and holds them to account. How did they do? So a steward has responsibility to handle something it's in their hands, it's, it's up to them what they do with it, and they've got to find wisdom from God to do well with that. And when they did well, of course, Jesus commenced them. We're stewards before the Lord of all that we have received. We are stewards. Our lives, our bodies, our partners, our children, our home, our possessions, our income, our time, our abilities and skills, our relationships with others, especially our fellow Christians. We hold every part of ourselves and our lives in trust from the Lord. And we live, I learned a new phrase this week, Coram Deo. Apparently one of the theologians I like, R.C. Sproul, used to often speak about it. It means, Latin, it means living before the face of God. We live before the face of God. Everything we have, everything we are, is entrusted to us. And we live as his servants and stewards before the face of God. But there's an issue that Jesus says is a key point in our stewardship. And it's this one, how we handle money. Money is one of the subjects that Jesus spoke most about. And again, I have to summarize his teaching and his parables to you and the teaching of the scriptures to you this morning. I have to uh, paraphrase it a little. So let me give you some headings. Key test of stewardship, which is also a key test of character, what kind of people we're becoming, is how we handle money. First of all, don't love money. We're commanded in Scripture. One, two, three, four, five times in Scripture we're commanded. Keep yourself from the love of money. Preachers who say, and I've heard them, and I've seen them on videos, you can love money so long as you love God more. That is false teaching. It goes against plain Scripture. Jesus tells us that money is deceitful. It's a false God. You can't trust it. He also said that if you love and serve money, you cannot love and serve God. They are incompatible. So, set apart the first 10% of all our income and we return it as first fruits to the Lord through the house, the church community that we belong to. Then we give other gifts and offerings to God, again, through that local church community from time to time. Then we further practice generosity including the meeting the real needs of real people. Now we can give to charities, we can give to missions and so on. That, that's great. But there are times when we need to do when we need to help the poor. We need to do something for somebody that we, that's real right there in front of us or, or our neighbor or whoever they are. And we, we dig into our pocket, we do something that helps people in a real situation. Then we steward the rest of our cash flow responsibly, wisely. Operative word, steward. It's given to us in trust. So we need to spend wisely, not extravagantly. We need to find good value for the things that we do in life. We need to make the best use of the money that we have, and not be wasteful with it. We need to save a bit for rainy days, as we say. Good principles of stewardship. Stewardship. They're how we are to handle this dangerous stuff as Jesus describes it. Money, cash flow, possessions. And if we follow the Lord's instructions, the Lord promises to supply more than enough. He talks about opening the windows of heaven and pouring out more than enough to those who will follow his instructions on handling money and wealth. Malachi 3, if you want to look it up. But the Lord is also clearly saying to us that he is generous with the generous and by... Connection, also stingy with stingy. wrote 2 Corinthians 9. Let me just read this to you. Remember this. Whoever sows... This is talking about giving. This is talking about money. This is talking about about, about giving into the kingdom of God through church enterprise. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. If you only plant five seeds in in your garden patch, that's all you're going to get, five plants. But whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one should give what is decided in his heart to give, not out of regret or compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Remember, Jesus teaches us that how we handle money is a key test of our stewardship, and therefore of our character. We're accountable to Jesus as king and judge. As servants and stewards, we're accountable for how we use all that we've been given, including our abilities. We can do well and be rewarded or handle what we've been given unwisely, selfishly, for our own purposes, for our own praise, without regard for the honour of the Lord or the good of others. And if we do that, we will be reprimanded. Not everyone will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. How we conduct ourselves as servants and stewards is the proving ground of character. It's where character is developed. Stewardship is, of course, much more older than just handling money rightly. But Jesus himself points that handling money is a key issue. And I think it's a breakthrough issue. If we get that sorted, it straightens us up. It sets ourselves sails for further growth in faith, obedience, and character. This is all about how we relate to Jesus as our king. When I give tithes to God through the local church, I am honoring my King, His word, His principles, his ways. And He blesses us for doing so. That's the testimony of Karen and I. God has blessed us. As we've been responsible to him, He takes responsibility for us. Fourthly, we are His soldiers. We fight the good fight of faith in this world. The Scriptures speak about this war, this battle, this struggle. Uh, Ephesians 5 talks about the armor and weapons which the Lord provides for us. Let me just talk about, first of all, our enemies. This is old material. You've heard me say this many times, from you. you? Uh, enemies are threefold. The world, a godless society, human beings who do not fear God, whose principles and godless... Whose ambitions are godless, whose philosophies are godless, and that is influencing us every single day of our lives, and and every bit of media and every bit of social media and every bit of technology is pushing these things at us. We as Christians have got to push back like big time. We're in a battle. We're struggling with our flesh, with our human nature, with the patterns of thinking and behavior that have been in us, first of all because of our fallen nature, first, secondly because of the habits of life, the things we've accumulated through our lives, the things we've learned from our parents, perhaps. from our schools, from our upbringing, from our so-called friends. We have been shaped so that these things are now within us. They're part of the way we think, we th- we, the way we reason, the way we feel, the way we behave. Our own inner being. Sinful humanity. Paul calls it flesh. We're struggling with that. And then we're struggling with the influence of Satan, the evil one, the devil. The continuing motivator of all wickedness and rebellion against God. Now, said Ephesians 5 gives us a list of the armor of God. I'm never going to talk about the armor of God. Do you notice it only gives us one, perhaps two things, which are weapons? Put on this armor and that, the helmet and the shield. And Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's the only weapon directly Paul talks about. But he goes on to talk what is perhaps the second one. Pray in the Spirit at all times. Pray without ceasing. Scripture and prayer are our only weapons. So we don't just fight fight the fight of faith by trying to get our faith bigger. Oh, give me more faith. I need more faith. How do you get more faith? Faith comes from hearing the Word of God. We need truth to build faith. The weapon is the Word. It's what forms our, reforms our thinking. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It reforms our thinking. It sh- reshapes us. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where do you get your mind renewed by? The, the Scriptures, the Word of God. That's why I implore you, read the Scriptures. Read them every day. Because your mind needs to be twisted back to shape again and again and again. We are receiving evil influence every day of our lives. How do we fight back? The Word of God. Prayer. By the way, the freedom in Christ, of course, which we just completed. Carol and I taught it this time. Carol taught it on her own to the ladies before that. Uh, we may re- revisit it sometime later this year, but it's very good at teaching and applying what this fight is about and how we fight it. it the course is, that's the key of the course. Uh, it's about God's Word. is our main weapon. The main ground, by the way, in which this battle takes place is not in the skies, but in our minds. This here, is the battleground for faith. 1 Corinthians 10, 2 Corinthians 10, sorry. So, although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not weapons of this world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Some people get that anything. and think, we're going to climb up the mountains and we're going to pull down the strongholds. Ah. Just read the next verse, please. We pull down, we tear down every argument, every presumption set up against the knowledge of God. What are those? Ways of thinking, philosophies, mindsets. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The battle is in our minds. It's not up there or out there. It's in here. This is where I need to be transformed. My mind needs to be renewed according to the truth of God. The word of truth. And Paul adds there, we'll be ready to punish every act of disobedience as soon as your obedience is complete. Which is a funny kind of way. Let me just say what he's saying to you. You need to sort some things out, otherwise when we come we'll sort them out. Alright? That's an apostolic father saying to him. Just get busy with this, otherwise you'll get It'll be for me to deal with when he comes. Notice the strongholds out there but in here. Arguments, presumptions, thoughts, prejudices, philosophies, entrenched ways of thinking. It's in our minds that the obedience to Christ battle needs to be won. When we think and then do. When we think right, we do right. I've often said that for a Christian there is really only two possibilities in this battle because we are in this fight of faith. If you are aware of it, you're a competent, fighting for faith and obedience to Jesus. But if you're not aware of it, you're a casualty. You're unconscious of the battle going on. You're offering no resistance. If you're not aware of the fact you're in this battle, you're a casualty. Another analogy Scripture uses is, is of us being asleep in the light. The light's on. It's bright daylight, but somehow we're still asleep. We haven't woken up to the reality. Paul, in his letters to Timothy, his young disciple, his young trainee, pastor, leader that uh, he'd raised up, uh, talks about the good fight of faith. And uh, fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy says, Timothy, Keep hold of the words that God's given you, so that by them you may fight the good fight of faith, holding on to faith and good conscience. Notice that, holding on to faith and good conscience. Some have rejected it and have have rejected the shipwreck of their faith. He talks about those. 1 Timothy 6. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession, Jesus' Lord, good confession before many witnesses. Then 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is almost certainly the last letter Paul ever wrote. He's in prison. He knows he's going to die very soon. I want to read his words to you, 2 Timothy 4. I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me only, but to all who love his appearing. Now I don't have time to say much more about being soldiers in the fight for faith, for truth, for the honor of the Lord, using simply God's Word and prayer. But if you do not know that you're in this fight, but you count yourself a Christian, I have, if you bear with me, just two words to say to you. Wake up. Please, wake up. These are ways so far in which we relate to the Lord Jesus, firstly as our Saviour, and then as our King. The third way in which we relate to Jesus I'll come back to in two weeks' time. But here's the Scripture The point's the way ahead. 1 John 2. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you through his name. Notice that? Jesus is Savior. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. They're good soldiers of Christ, yes? He goes on, he repeats it. I'm writing to you, little children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God lives in you, and you've overcome the evil one. Interesting repetition. I am writing to you. I have written to you. Little children, young men and women and fathers are clearly stages of growth and maturity in Christian life. Can you accept that? The stages of growth to maturity? We all start as little children. We just know our sins are forgiven and God's become our Father. That's precious, isn't it? Delightful. And literally little children can know that. Your children, little kids, can with sweet devotion love Jesus as their Savior. They know they're forgiven. They know they're loved by God. Or if you're in your later years and you've only just become a Christian, what a wonderful thing it is to know, I'm forgiven, Jesus loves me. But we need to grow. We need to get strong. We need to get into this fight. We need to learn how to be servants and stewards as well as subjects of the king, keeping his commandments and fighting the good fight of faith, not accepting all the rubbish that's thrown at us day by day by day through every every source around us. But fighting back for the knowledge of Jesus obedience to Jesus and the honor of Jesus now we'll come back to the third one next in 2 weeks time not next week 2 weeks time i've writing or i've written to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning real christian maturity is really simply this knowing Jesus and I'm gonna put that together two weeks' time under this heading. Knowing Jesus as master. Or you could say as friend. You know him who is from the beginning. We'll come back to that then. For now, let's bow ahead some prayer for a moment, then we'll break bread together. Today Talking to you about how we relate to Jesus as King. We can all say Jesus is Lord, and maybe we can all go, Amen, Hallelujah, that Jesus is reigning in heaven, He's King over all things. But you know, the reason I, I used that old video again today, every one of us needs to be able to say from the depths of our heart, Jesus, my King. And behind that come these areas of responsibility and response to Him. I'm his subject. I'm to do his will, to keep his commandments. I'm his servant, to do as he directs me, to work with what he gives me. I'm his steward. There are things he's entrusted into my hands and I have to make those decisions so I keep seeking his wisdom on how I handle these things. Specifically, key issue, Jesus called it the key issue, he points to it. Key issue of Stewardship, getting money sorted out. And then, the soldier. Let's not be those who are asleep in the light and open to anything that blows over us because because it's there in the news, because it's current, because it's new, because it's fresh. It's it's the thing that's happening. We need to be those who take up the armor of God and fight with the sword of the Spirit and with prayer to guard ourselves, to guard others around us, guard our homes, our families. We're fighting for the honor of Jesus. We're fighting for righteousness. We're fighting for the truth. We're fighting for godliness. We're fighting for justice. But its we're soldiers and he's the captain. And he will strengthen us. I want take a moment, let these things settle in our hearts now, Lord Jesus, that we learn new ways to relate well to you. We grow in these things. Maybe we haven't thought about them much. Maybe we haven't ever tackled them. We've left them to one side. But Lord, you call us to grow, to come closer to you, to draw strength from you, to rely upon you for the wisdom, the strength, the courage, that we need to do life the way it should be. And it's full of you, full of your life in us. Holy Spirit, help us bring from us this obedience of faith, which is the mark of true faith. We know that we love God because we keep his commandments. Lord Jesus, strengthen us. For us, grow tired of the conflict. We go to bed some nights weary of the pressures of the day. Strengthen us, Holy Spirit. And speak to us through one another those words, prophetic words which build us up and encourage us to stand us on our feet again. We pray for that measure of prophecy which brings back energy to us, courage to keep going, to keep persisting, to keep enduring.